You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number one. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Francie Brokhammer on how to build a happy life and happy family. Welcome to Mother Good, where we strongly believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. I'm your host, Emily Carney, and I'm so happy you are here. Listen in on authentic and positive conversations to get the best practical tips to help you live to your full potential as a mom. Our content is also judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. If you are looking for a meaningful motherhood community and ready to thrive, not just survive, you are in the right place. Mothergood is a nonprofit organization funded by our generous donors. If you like this podcast, please consider joining them at mothergoodco.com give. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily Carney, and I'm so excited about today. Today, I'm launching the Mothergood podcast, and it has been a passion of mine for a while. About a little over a year ago, I founded Mothergood with my good friend Lauren Michelle as a platform to support mothers with practical advice with a positive and authentic narrative. It was also important to us to have a platform that is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. We had both just experienced a very difficult delivery with our very first children, and I especially had a difficult postpartum recovery. And during my journey, I had a very hard time finding a platform that supported me and gave me the kind of information I yearned for. Most of the mom blog content out there, which I definitely read and enjoy reading as well, but it was either over-sentimentalized advice that was hard to put into practice or involved lots of judgment, such as, you should be a stay-at-home mom, or you should work to have your own identity and be your own person, etc., There wasn't a single resource out there that I could turn to that gave me practical tips on how to navigate this new world of motherhood. At the same time, I craved a resource that provided easily consumable medical information for issues that pregnant and postpartum moms face like myself. No one really talks about preeclampsia, postclampsia, gestational diabetes, postpartum depression, and anxiety urinary incontinence, painful sex. Some of these things are kind of embarrassing to talk about. Maybe that's why no one talks about it, but we need to be having these conversations because women are suffering when there are solutions and treatments available out there. And it's important to connect with other moms who are going through the same sort of experiences that we are. And it's really hard to find resources that give answers that we can understand to these common issues that all these moms are facing. And for myself, I had a condition called symphysis pubis dysfunction, which sounds really complicated, but just as a fancy way of saying dislocation of the pelvis. So I'll get into more of that on a later date. But I was just at a loss for finding some sort of resource that would provide me this sort of medical information in a way that I could easily understand it and also to connect with other moms who were going through the same experience that I had. Even though they were really common issues, it was just really hard to connect with those moms. Now, it wasn't just all medical content we were interested in either. It was how do we get our baby to sleep more at night? What should I do when I'm tired and everyone says sleep when the baby sleeps and your baby never sleeps? And there are a lot of other more difficult conversations that needed to be had in an authentic way and a space needed to be created so that we could have these conversations such as, I really like working. Is it okay that I want to work after having a child? Or I don't really want to work anymore. Is it okay that I don't want to work anymore? Those sorts of conversations. It's so hard to get the support for the decision you're making that you know is in your best interest and your family's best interest 
without receiving shame either. As a result, we founded Mothergood that was originally just a social media platform until we recently expanded to have a conference that we just held at UCI Medical School this past May. And now we're launching this podcast so we can have the opportunity to dive deeper into topics in a way that isn't possible online. I'm going to talk more about our mission of Mothergood at a later date, but I wanted to take a couple minutes to give you some background context for our content and to introduce you to our five core values, which I've mentioned already, which is positive, practical, authentic, judgment-free, and evidence-based. And now a quick introduction for myself. I was born and raised in Southern California, and I still live here now with my husband and one and a half year old daughter, Kate. And I'm actually an attorney, so it has nothing to do with social media or making a platform, but I really truly enjoy connecting with other moms and having these conversations. So now let's talk about the content in our first episode. I think every parent on the planet wants to have a happy family, and that is why I'm so excited about today's episode. Dr. Francie Brokhammer answers the question of how we can begin to build a happy family. She shares practical tips that she has discovered during her research on human happiness. These tips will help you start creating a culture of happiness in your family starting today. Dr. Brokehammer was born and raised in Orange County, California. She attended University of Notre Dame, spent a summer in Brazil serving alongside Mary Knoll missionaries in an international women's prison. She then attended medical school at University of California, Irvine, where she's now completing her psychiatry resident and was recently elected chief resident. So without further ado, here is our amazing conversation with Dr. Francie Brokehammer. Hi, Francie. Welcome to the Mother Good Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. I'm so excited to be here today. Well, we are so excited for you to be here because not only do we love you, it's our very first show. Yeah, so exciting. So I know I already introduced you, but could you tell everyone about yourself? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, I will give you a brief overview. So I, uh, born and raised in Southern California, I'm one of six children. And I actually didn't leave my small little bubble in Southern California until I went to college where I um, attended the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, which was quite the culture shock. Um, while I was there, I played on our, our women's lacrosse team, Division One, and that was fantastic. I also studied pre-med and Portuguese and Brazilian studies. And then I um, met my now husband, Mike, while I was at Notre Dame. So I, I owe a lot to that period in my life. And following Notre Dame, I got married, gosh, probably three weeks, I think, after we graduated. And I started med school in back home in Southern California at UC Irvine just a month after that. I, I completed all of my med school training at UC Irvine. And I, as, as luck would have it, stayed for residency, which is wonderful because we have so much family here, which has been really important for us because we have a little one who just turned five. As I say that, I realize he's not so little anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm doing my residency here at UC Irvine. I'm the, the chief resident in psychiatry. Uh, just entered into my PGY three year, my third year of residency training. And I'm doing a lot of my research currently on what it means to build healthy lives, healthy families, and really flourish. That is so amazing. And I love how accomplished you are. And yet somehow you were able to fit motherhood into that mix. Would you mind sharing with us how you were able to do that? Absolutely. So I will 
by no stretch of the imagination pretend to be an expert on this. I think anyone who is considering parenting has seen parenting or as a parent themselves know that we're all just figuring it out one day at a time. As soon as you think you have it figured out, the game changes on you. But um, so my husband and I were so blissfully in love right after we got married that we said, absolutely, why wouldn't we want a child? And we were pregnant within three weeks of being married, which we were so, so fortunate for. Um, But it also meant I got pregnant in my first week or so of medical school. So I really had no idea what was in store for me. And my son, Steele, was born the very last week of med school, and or my first year of med school, I should say, right before I went on summer break. And it turned our world upside down. Uh, but I owe so much to that transition. You say that it's a lot to balance. And I'll tell you that it is. And I, I certainly won't pretend that I do it alone. I have a small army here in Southern California with me between my siblings and my parents and cousins, friends, etc. But what's so interesting I found in having a child, after he was born, my grades actually improved significantly. And I attribute so much to him and kind of this process I went through where it really helped me understand what my priorities were. And all of the stuff that became that used to be superfluous and extra and took my attention away from either my family, my husband and my son, or my studies, which were at this point in time, the three most important things in my life, I quickly realized I had to cut out. And as a result, I became much more efficient, but it was a process and it it still is a process. Um, I remember I didn't quite feel like myself until my son was about a year and a half old because it took me that long to figure out that it was possible to still be a student and a pretty good student and be a mom and a pretty good mom at that. For a long time, I, I, I struggled with this idea that maybe it wasn't compatible to be good at either of those things or especially good at them at the same time. Wow. That is so incredible that not only were you a good mother, you were also an even better student. That is so amazing. You know, I think that that's really one reason why so many women do put off careers or going back to school because they are afraid of, you know, the big what if, will I be able to be a good mother and a good student at the same time? So it's so encouraging to hear your testimony on that. Let's talk about your research as a psychiatrist. I know a big passion of yours is to help families be happy families. Can you share some of your research on human happiness? So my research started um, a little over a year ago in residency, honing in on a suicide epidemic that we're experiencing in America, which we can probably touch on more in depth at a slightly later date. But what I realized is that Americans, by and large, are really not very happy. They're much less happy than they have been in the past. And as a result, they're they're becoming ill and they're killing themselves in increasing numbers as a result of that. And it was just shocking to me to see this going on. And it begs the question, what's going on upstream in our culture that's leading people to be so unhappy? And it really sparked this path of research into what you could consider maybe human flourishing, not just happiness, but what it means to lead a healthy and fulfilling life where you can feel feel maybe challenged or worn down sometimes, but like you're on the right path and your life has meaning um, at the end of the day. And what does that look like? And when I started looking into that research, I found that there's many areas of our lives that have changed over the last several decades. But in particular, I've, I've been studying changes in the home, changes in the workplace, changes in religious patterns, and changes in just communication and social 
connection in general and how that looks so different in 2019 than it did even at the turn of the century, like 2000, 20 years ago. It, it looks so different now than it used to. And the research there has been really, really interesting to look into. Now, why is that? I've read so many articles saying the same thing, that this is one of the least happy generations ever. It seems like we should be happy given all of our advances in technology, but maybe that's part of the problem. And I know we'll talk about this a little later, but why is that? Why are we so unhappy? That's a good question. There's a lot going on there. And part of it might be that we're putting increased emphasis on who's happy and what does it mean to be happy? You know, find your happiness, find your bliss, find your path, live your best life, whatever line you're being fed these days. Um, But beyond that, we're seeing sweeping changes in how we interact with each other. And it's permeating into every area of our life. But by and large, we've become independent individuals, more so than any other generation at any point in time. It's a, it's a sink or swim. If you, if you succeed, it's because you did well, you worked hard, and you earned it. And if you fail, it's because you, for some reason, didn't meet the expectations that were there, and it's your fault. And I'll tell you what, no man is an island. No one does it alone. And so this idea of kind of rugged independence is really devastating and dangerous for so many individuals because no one is meant to achieve anything alone. And actually, when we work independently, we by and large can achieve very little on our own. That is so true that community is important. Just from my personal experience that I know that being pregnant and postpartum, it's really hard. And it would have been even harder if I didn't have that community to rely on. It's just so nice to have that friend you can go to and confide in and to know that you're not alone. You know, when they say, oh, me too, I'm having that same feeling or thought or whatnot. It's just such a relief. Yes. And I love what you just said, the importance of community and knowing you're not alone. Community is really the core of what's going on and what's changed. And I'm not just saying, do you have people that you can talk to? I'm saying, do you have people you can really talk to? about really important things when you're really struggling or worried or you have to make a life decision. What the research has shown is that while we have increasing number of friends, quote unquote, that's what we'll call them right now, we actually have fewer people in our lives who we can talk to about really important and challenging things. Actually, 20% of Americans right now say they have absolutely no one they can talk to about important things in their lives. That's devastating and that's very isolating. And so If the question is, how do we build more intentional and healthy communities, whether it's the community within our household with your spouse and your children um, or communities outside of the household, I think we have to start by recognizing we're called not just to kind of be around each other and exist in each other's proximity, but to be willing to ask the difficult questions and to get a little uncomfortable with someone so that we can bridge that gap and be there to have those meaningful conversations. Being physically present is not enough. We need to really allow ourselves and someone else to be uncomfortable so that we can build those bonds that actually lead to health and connection. That's such a good point that community isn't just being surrounded by others, but actually making a connection with them. I love that. It's so easy to just exist around others and engage in a polite chat without actually getting into what is troubling us or on our mind. I know for me, whenever I'm with friends, I definitely feel a deep connection when either I share something with my friends or they share something with me. And I think it's because I know that no one's life is perfect. And when we share what is really going on, whether it's big or small, good or bad, 
we can have that me too moment when we form connections. So do you have any practical tips for moms out there who want to create a meaningful community? I mean, it's one thing to have that goal of, I want to create a community, but how do we actually do that? So I would say it has to start with you, which actually becomes a, it places you in a, a position that can be quite vulnerable from time to time. I actually, I'll, I'll tell a small story quick, Emily, and I think it was maybe six months ago that you and I met at a coffee shop to sit down to, to chat through something. And we just started kind of scratching the surface of what does it mean to be a mom right now? And why is it so darn hard? And I said, I shared with you, and it was one of the first times I'd actually met you in person, but I said, you know, Emily, I just, it was hard for me because when my son was born, I didn't feel immediately connected to him. It took me a little bit of time and everyone was coming to me and saying, aren't you the happiest you've ever been? Don't you love him so much? And it made me feel broken as a mother. And then it was you and a couple other women who were there around us that go, oh my gosh, I had a little bit of that too. And so in that moment, even though, you know, I maybe didn't know you or some of these other women as well, being kind of honest about my experiences and not sugarcoating anything allowed us all to to come together quickly and to build this type of shared identity and relationship. And in sharing my, my truth and my experience, all of a sudden we had a community that was, was deeper than that of, oh, how are you doing? So good to see you. It's been a while. I miss you, right? And I think that actually taking the step to be a little bit vulnerable to share your experiences. When someone asks how you're doing, if it's not, if you're in the right position and you have a moment to share, you can say, you know, actually I've been struggling with this. I know you have a kid. Have you ever been there? And actually pushing it outside of the bounds of what's considered superficial, socially appropriate, and really reaching out to try to build those types of relationships. I really like that you brought up that conversation that we had as an example, because you are definitely right. I remember feeling more connected to you and to my other friend when we did share our common struggles that we were going through and to know that we weren't alone in our struggles. Speaking of struggles, let's talk a little bit about the different struggles that working moms and stay-at-home moms face. I've heard you talk about this a little bit at our conference back in May, and you just did such a beautiful job of talking about it and giving tips for moms. So first, let's talk about working moms. Can you talk about the struggles that they face and give some tips for overcoming them? Being a working mom, I, you can you can relate to this. It's it's an interesting dynamic, and I'll start by saying, uh, I think it's important to note that it's not easier or harder to be a working mom versus stay at home mom. They have different challenges that are so challenging and so important in their own way, and so frequently, I think, kind of our own guilt or misunderstandings or whatever it may be surrounding motherhood allows us to say, oh, it would be easier if. If I had the opportunity to leave the house and have adult interaction and, you know, make sure that my hair is washed each day because it's required to be to go to work, that would help me feel more human. Or I could say, you know, the flip side of, oh gosh, if I just had time to take my kid to school every day, or I had time to, to really sit down with him and do his homework at the end of the day, then it would be better. And I think we do a lot of this grass is greener on the other side. And I've talked to a lot of women and (laughs) I won't say that the grass is greener on either side. They just come with their own sets of challenges. But I will speak from my side um, that I've seen more personally since my son has been born, which is the working motherhood side. And one of my challenges has been, I would say, balancing the guilt of it. And um, Sheryl Sandberg actually put this very well 
when she said, if you take inventory at the end of the week or the end of the month, and you, you recognize that the guilt you feel about your job is roughly equivalent to the guilt that you feel about your family or your, your child, raising your child, then on average, you're doing a pretty good job. And it took me a long time to wrestle with this idea. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I can never escape the guilt. But we have to recognize that once a child is born, once your child is born, as a woman, a part of your heart will always be outside of your body. And you are biologically and hormonally wired to always be worrying about this other individual. It's, it's adaptive, right? That's how your children survive. It's very important that we have that. But the cost to you as a mother, the cost of this love is guilt. That's how we experience it by and large is this guilt. Am I doing enough? Is it, is it enough here? Is it enough there? Whatever it may be. But recognizing that being a working mom or a stay-at-home mom is not about totally negating the guilt. The goal is not to feel guilty, to do everything perfect so you can go to bed at the end of the day and say, oh, I rocked that. No need to feel guilty. The goal is to make sure that you're feeding yourself and your family and you're progressing towards the values that are important to you as an individual and your family as a whole. And so how do you do that as a working mom becomes the question. And I think it's important to have conversations with your spouse regularly or your partner and make sure that you understand what the values are for your household, right? Do do we want to raise a child that A, B, or C, you know, has a very strong uh, connection with his faith or really it's important to him to spend time with his family or he will feel comfortable reaching out to me if he ever needs anything for help. So if you work from this values-based end, right, this is what we want our son to be when he is grown, every decision that you make in the here and now, you can put into that perspective. Will this decision that we're making right now lead us down this road where we can reach, he can hopefully be closer to attaining this value that we, that we desire for him in the future? You can be a working mom. You can be a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't matter who you are or what the specific logistical constraints are of your certain situation. But if you have an open dialogue within your family about what's important to your family and every decision that you're able to make is kind of geared towards that, you will by and large be on the right path at the end of the day. I love what you said that when you have a child, part of your heart lives outside of you for the rest of your life. That is so beautiful and so true. I did not expect that at all, but I can totally relate to that. It's good to know that's why it's so hard to create the right balance of caring for our children and thriving as individuals. And being a mom who thrives as either a working mom or a stay-at-home mom relates to our topic of building happy families. I remember you saying at our conference that the four drivers of human happiness are social, which we just talked about, employment, family, and spirituality. So it is really important that we talk about what moms do for work, because employment is one of the drivers of human happiness. And side note, I would just like to say that all moms work, (laughs) both working moms and stay-at-home moms. I have done both, and both are work and equally hard in different ways. So I just wanted to say that side note. So now let's talk about stay-at-home moms. I only have one child so far, so this has been a bit easier for me, but some of my friends with two or three plus kids have said it's really hard. It's hard to just get out of the house. So how can a stay-at-home mom struggling to just get out of the house make the time to make meaningful connections? It comes back to this idea of kind of being shameless and reaching out to people. 
Um, you know, I, it seems like you're in a similar situation as me. I saw you in the park. Our kids seem like they're roughly the same age. Do you want to switch phone numbers and come over? If it's too hard to have your kids leave the house, have people come to you. It doesn't matter if your house is messy. It doesn't matter if you feel that you have enough room to accommodate everyone. The act of reaching out and working to create some type of a dynamic is so, so important. I will never forget my neighbor down the street when we first moved in. She had two little ones and was about eight months pregnant. And we were in boxes. And she said, and my son and I were walking down the street and she goes, Hey, come in. Um, our, our kids can play. I'd love to get to know you. And she invited us in and I thought, you know, my house was in boxes and it was a mess. And I walked into hers and hers was just as messy, if not more messy. And she goes, oh, pardon the mess. I still want to spend time and get to know you anyway. And for me, that was so incredibly relieving because it meant that there wasn't this expectation of everything has to appear perfect before you can reach out to someone. She just said, here I am. Here's where I am right now. And I want to get to know you with no kind of facade or anything else in between. And it didn't result in judgment towards her, but it resulted in relief on my end. And I found it really liberating and just so incredibly touching that she would reach out in that way. It is really hard to try and not maintain an appearance of perfection. I've asked a lot of other moms why this is since it's our motto here at Motherhood. There's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. I've asked why is it that we try to give this illusion of perfection And the answer I've received from almost every mom is societal pressures. How can we let go of these societal pressures? And also, how do we know who we can trust with our vulnerability? I know I personally have been burned once or twice after being vulnerable, but I will have to say that 99% of the time, my vulnerability has been met with deeper connection and more meaningful relationships. Right, right. And again, it's probably a, a slight period of trial and error. We do a lot of work in the field of psychiatry with what we call cognitive distortions, meaning thoughts that might go through your head and you put a lot of weight in them. But in the real world, when you take a step back and look at them, might not make a whole lot of sense. So for example, oh, I would love to invite this woman over. I don't know what she would think. My house is really messy. What if she judges me? Okay, what if she does? You've met this woman once. You may or may not see her at the park again regardless. So say she comes over and judges you and it doesn't go well. What happens? Probably nothing, right? The cost of that down the line is probably nothing. But the benefit, if it does go well, is quite large. But in that moment where you're saying, oh gosh, what if they judge me? I don't think my house is clean enough. I don't think I'm good enough. Maybe I haven't done what I feel that I need to do or I'm not as accomplished. I don't feel that I can share. Those are our own personal insecurities that we're projecting on ourselves as opposed to anyone else's judgment. So we're actually getting in our way there. So frequently we do what's called thought logs in cognitive behavioral therapy where you take your automatic thought, right? Maybe I will be judged by this woman. And then you look at the evidence for that. Okay, well, I don't know her. So, you know, her early perception of me is going to be filled with judgment so that she can navigate this road and try to figure out who I am. Okay, and what goes against that? Well, I don't know her. And why, why would she care one way or another if my house is clean or anything else? Maybe she just needs a friend also, right? And then you revisit that initial thought of, oh, gosh, I don't know this woman. Maybe she'll judge me. And you say, okay, how valid is that? Is that coming from me? And my insecurity, or is that something that really is a true threat from the outside? And by and large, at the end of the day, you can say, okay, it's probably my own insecurities, and therefore I can move forward. And you'll you'll find that your anxiety can qualm a little bit once you go through this thought process with yourself. Immediate thought, 
evidence for, evidence against, and then revisiting that thought and any emotions that you have tied to that thought as well. I like that a lot. And I'm not sure if this is right or not, but what I also do is whenever I'm faced with the thought of whether or not I should do something and whether or not it will be met with judgment, I just ask myself, well, would I want to be friends with this person anyway if they judge me for doing whatever it is, X, Y, and Z? No, that's a beautiful, beautiful response. And that would be a perfect thought to put into one of those columns to kind of navigate, okay, is it worth it or not? Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about technology because I know you've mentioned in the past that technology plays a big role in our happiness. So I'm going to ask you a little oversimplified question, but bear with me. Technology, good or bad? Yeah, I wish it was that easy. Is it good or bad? Oh, I really do. Um, Technology in many ways has become a necessary evil, but I'll preface that by saying is there's so much good that can come out of it as well. Um, I think of all the the women I've been able to connect with. Yeah, there was a good friend from college who I'd actually lost track of via seeing her in a photo that was just down the block from me. I reached out and was like, hey, did you move across the country? And we were able to reconnect and it ended up being a beautiful relationship that I couldn't have had otherwise, right? So there are these amazing benefits. But at the same time, for every interaction or gain that you have like that, you might spend X number of hours just aimlessly scrolling through photos, judging yourself, you know, kind of avoiding other things that have to be done during the day. So it is this balance. And the balance for everyone is quite different and what that looks like. And so introducing technology into your home, I think, should be answered from the standpoint of the parents and then from the standpoint of the children. So I'll start with the parents first. And I think you have to be very honest with yourself about what you're doing and the type of content that you're consuming. There are some times where I have people that are just sending me amazing articles that I'm so much better for having had the opportunity to read and had quick access to. So that's a good relationship, a good um, technological avenue that I want to cultivate. There's a lot of really amazing um, women or writers or um, researchers on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whoever, whatever it may be that I gain a lot from following. Whenever I read them, I'm like, okay, I, I was fed from this. I received something here. So this is worthwhile to cultivate. And then there's the relationships um, where you're like, oh, I follow this person. And every time I see it, like, it's just mind numbing. Either I feel bad about myself or I don't feel that I gain anything from it. Or I feel that it might be encouraging values that I don't hold for myself or my family. Um, So kind of very intentionally starting to weed those things out, right? You can unfollow, you can avoid that site, whatever it may be. Something that can be really helpful in this way is the... Oh, what's it called? The the like time saver on your on the iPhones now. I'm I'm forgetting right now what it's called, but where you can track how much time you spend on each app and it will actually lock you out after a set amount of time. So I have my Instagram set up for 15 minutes a day. And after 15 minutes a day, it'll come up and say you're locked out, which is a nice little reminder that I've reached the maximum. I should not be spending any more time scrolling. That being said, <laughs> there is a little button at the end, that's at the bottom that says, ignore this, and you can just keep going. So you have to hold yourself a little bit accountable there as well, but it's nice to have a little breather to say, oh, wow, I, I am spending more time doing this than I thought. So you do think that technology and social media can be used in a way that contributes to our overall happiness and be a part of our plan for building a happy family? 
It can, but you have to, you have to, have to, have to be very honest with yourself and with your spouse and with your children about what that looks like. I can't tell you how many nights my husband will be like, oh, I thought you were just going over to check that and you've been gone for 20 minutes. Like, what are you scrolling on? And then I feel guilty and embarrassed, right? But I appreciate him for calling me out in that way. So you can. But if you're someone who has an overly addictive personality, it's not going very well, you're not able to get this separation that you may have desired, it might be prudent to actually give yourself a bit of a gap, maybe a a long fasting period of a week, two weeks, a month, whatever it may be, before you kind of step back into this. Because we have to keep in mind that technology um, and all of these apps are actually designed to be addictive. They're designed by the same engineers that create... um, a lot of the, the various games in and like slot machines in casinos, etc. Like the lights, the colors that are used, the frequency that you get notifications, that's all very intentional. And the intention is not for your best benefit. The intention is to keep you there so that you can see more advertisements and they can generate more revenue. So you have to keep that in mind. It's meant to be addictive. And every time that you see a photo or you like a photo or someone comments, a little bit of dopamine is released in your brain. And dopamine is released in your brain every time you drink alcohol, every time you use drugs. It's this kind of happy, addictive hormone that keeps us coming back. So we have to know that the odds are against us when you go into that. That being said, I think we're past the point in 2019 where you can say, I'm just not going to do it at all. I'm going to get a flip phone and I'm not going to be on any of these apps. For some people, that totally works. I tried to do it for a short period of time with my work, and I found that I just wasn't actually able to get the messages I needed during the day due to our hospital communication system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So finding this balance that works for you is very important. And I'll, I'll say one last thing on that. One of the best things I've heard is trying to create like a little Sabbath from technology. So once a week, maybe on Sundays, for example, for you and your family, letting that be a phone fasting day. And once a month, maybe extend that to be two days, give yourself a whole weekend. And once a season, give yourself maybe a whole week. And once a year, maybe give yourself two or three weeks. Find some type of frequency that works for you and your family, but to build in very intentional periods of fasting from your technology. So you can really stay centered and focused on your family and all of those values that we talked about earlier, driving towards what your family values are. I've read some of those same studies you mentioned about the addictive nature of social media, and it's really scary. I can attest that it can be addictive. I've had to put those time limits that they have on various apps on my phone, but I feel much better and happier when the time on my phone is limited. So let's talk now about the final driver of happiness that you've mentioned before in previous talks, our faith. How does faith play a role in our happiness? Really fascinating data and real life experiences that I've had surrounding individuals' interaction with their faith life and with their religion. And what we know is that right now, by and large, active religious participation is down across the country. Um, And that's dangerous, especially amongst millennials. Um, 80% of millennials will tell you that they believe in God, and 50% of millennials will say that they believe in God with absolute certainty, but they're not attending church. So you have to ask why. And for me, I've really, really come to appreciate the value of actually attending a weekly service during the time that I've been in residency, because I recognize it's not just about your personal faith development, 
but it's about your ties to this community where you see the the teachings that are being taught every week actually coming to action, where you're held accountable by individuals. My husband is part of a service organization and they didn't text him or email him saying, hey, what time or can you come volunteer? They said, we signed you up for Monday afternoon. Does that work, right? The expectation is that everyone is pitching in and serving each other. And that is so darn important. And when we talk about the lack of community that people have, the very act of going to church every week and seeing the same people over and over again allows you to kind of understand maybe who it is safe to reach out to and who you would like to get to know a little bit more. And you can over time build a really rich, beautiful community. And I think this physical community is what I like to refer to as like the horizontal component of faith. And then the vertical component of faith, right? You and your actual faith development, your understanding, your relationship with God is so, so important as well. Because in a time period where people feel judged, if they can't match up to, you know, the photos around them or whatever external expectation is placed on them, have you been promoted? Are you making X amount of money? Are you married? Did you buy a house? Did you have kids? Whatever it may be. In a time period where we're measured by our accomplishments, the very knowledge that we are loved just for the sake that we are a child of God and we are beloved just how we are and that we have been given gifts that are so intentional just for us to bring into the world and leave the world a better place is really important because only when we come together and recognize that we all have these individual gifts and that when we work together, we're able to leave our communities much better when these gifts work in kind of a symbiosis with each other. Are we able to really glorify God and live out our faith in the way that I think that we're called to do? And so it's important to have both this vertical and the horizontal component of our faith so that we can not just learn it and embody it, but start to practice it and bring it into the world, allow it to be a light in the world every single day. And this will allow us to combat this, this degradation of community, the rapid epidemic of loneliness that we're seeing in our modern day. I think faith is such, such a key. You're so right. I guess I never really thought about it before that faith is the only aspect in our lives where we are valued for our inherent worth as a human being. And that's not really something that our goal-driven, success-chasing society tells us. In parting, do you have any final words of wisdom for mothers listening to this who want to build a happy family? I will say this. There is no such thing as a perfect mother. There's no such thing as a perfect parent or a perfect child. And so letting go of that ideal is going to be really important. And recognizing that each and every day is a journey to understand this child that you've been given, to appreciate them as the individual they are a little bit more, and to understand who you are as you come into your identity as a parent. Because that's a new identity and a new side of yourself you have not yet come to know yet. So every single day is a work in progress. And it can feel so upsetting at so many points when you don't feel that you know your child or you know yourself or you're achieving, quote unquote, parenthood in the way that you feel that you should be based off the external um, expectations that we see around us that are placed on parents. But instead, just recognize no one's got it figured out. Literally no one in the history of ever has been a perfect parent. And so let go of that expectation for yourself and enjoy the small moments and be brutally honest with yourself at the end of the day. Do an examination of conscience and look back and say, where did I fulfill my values for my family today and my values for myself and my goals for myself as a parent and a mother and as an individual? And where did I fall short of that? And what can I change tomorrow? 
recognizing that each and every day is an opportunity for growth and you're never going to be perfect, but each day you do have the opportunity to be a little bit better and to fail differently than you did the day before. I just breathed a sigh of relief when you said that no parent in the history of humanity has been perfect. I think we all know that, but it's nice to remind ourselves of that from time to time. And you perfectly summarized our motto for mother good as well, that there is no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Wow, Francie, I'm so inspired by everything we've talked about today. And I know I've learned so many tools that I can implement in my daily life. And I know that everyone listening did as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for speaking with us today and sharing your wisdom and research with us. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for doing what you're doing. Mother Good is so, so needed and more conversations like this and women coming together to build a very intentional community. So thank you for working so hard to build this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to our very first episode of the Mother Good Podcast. As a reminder, we are a nonprofit organization and we donate our time and resources to this passion project of ours. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider donating at mothergoodco.com slash give.